Welcome back. We are in an ongoing study of John's Gospel. You may be wondering what that picture is. It may be somewhat familiar to you that's on the screen. Uh, the painting is by the pre-Raphaelite artist Holman Hunt. And it was done in the height of the Victorian era. And there are two copies that are extant today. One hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. However, if you went with the choir uh, just about a year ago... Uh, it was out for restoration, so you didn't get an opportunity to see it. So you'll have to go back because it is absolutely magnificent. And the other copy, he did several of them, is at Keeble College at Oxford University. Um, they are slightly different, but um, very similar, but there are some slight variations. Um, but the title of the painting is The Light of the World, and since that is the theme of the text that we're looking at today, I thought it was an appropriate piece of artwork to put on the screen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin at verse 12. As a matter of fact, excuse not Romans. Well, what class is this? John? <laughs> I'm prepared for either, so don't worry about it. You know, when you teach so many classes, you don't know where you are sometimes. Somewhere in the Bible, just pick a text, whatever one you want. We're in John chapter 8 today, and we're going to take a look at verse 12, really just this one verse today. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We looked at this story of the woman caught in adultery last week. And we say this is where you really get a picture into the hearts of the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, their evil intent, their wickedness, their hatred for Jesus that burned so hot that they were willing to use anybody, even this woman, as a pawn in their scheme to bring Jesus down. We pointed out that they weren't the least bit interested in this woman. Um, they even weren't particularly concerned about the crime that she had committed, according to the Jewish law. They were just prepared to use her, even if that meant that they had to forfeit her life, they were willing to use her in order to get at Jesus. That really is wickedness. That really goes to show you the darkness of their hearts. So it's interesting, isn't it, that the very next thing that Jesus says after these people drop their stones and walk away is that he says, behold, I am the light of the world. In stark contrast to their Darkness. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It is significant. This is the second of seven I am statements that we find here in the Gospel of John. We've already looked at one of them. I am the bread of life, which is in John chapter 6. But there are others as well. There is the phrase, I am the gate, which is in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, also in John chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life, John chapter 11. You're familiar with that because it's part of the burial office. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father, in John chapter 14. And I am the true vine. These I am statements are unique to the gospel of John. And John, by including them in his gospel, is making a very clear statement. He is sending a clear message to us, and that message pertains to Jesus' divinity. 
Because it's important to understand that those phrases, I am, I am the bread of life, or I am the door, or I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the vine, those are not just statements about Jesus saying, these are the things that I represent. This is Jesus making a claim of equality with the Father. And it's important that we understand that. Because it was precisely these kinds of statements that got him into trouble with the religious leaders. It was precisely these kinds of statements that ultimately would result in his betrayal, his arrest, and his death. So what's the background to this? Well, the background is in the Old Testament, and we just need to remember it. I'm sure you know this story, but if not, it's, it's worth reading. And if you are familiar, it's worth refreshing our memory about it. If you turn to Exodus chapter 3, you have the story of the calling of Moses. Moses, of course, is one of the most significant figures in the Old Testament. He is this man that God raises up as a champion. The Hebrew people had been enslaved for 431 years. They had been enslaved in Egypt, living under the lash of the Egyptians, this oppressive regime. They had been forced to make bricks without straw. And they felt that that was just their lot in life. But God had remembered the promise that he had made to their forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And God had determined that he was going to deliver them out of their bondage. And he was going to do that by raising up a champion, somebody to lead these people. And that person was Moses. And this is the story of the calling of Moses. It's the calling that came from the burning bush. You're familiar with it. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now I just want you to sort of picture that. I, I love the way this is described. This, this, is, this is a classic example of understatement, if ever there was one. Because we're told that Moses is out there in the wilderness and all of a sudden there is this bush which for no apparent reason just bursts into flame. And not only does it just spontaneously combust, but it's burning, but it remains green. It's, it's lush. It is not consumed. And I say that this is a case of understatement because this is how Moses replies when he sees it. I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now, you know that's not what he said. <laughs> this is no doubt the sanitized version. What do you think, Moses? Saying, oh, my. <laughs> Fill in the blank. <laughs> you know that's exactly what he thought. <laughs> so Moses turned aside to see. And God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I know I've shared this story, but I got to share this story again. Some years ago when I was in seminary, um, my first um, Sunday, we had to look, the first year that you're in seminary, you were, uh, have to go and look for a fieldwork parish where for the next two years you're going to serve um, as a seminarian and you have your opportunity to sort of look around and then you'll be interviewed by the rector and so forth. And, and I, I knew where I wanted to go the first Sunday. I, I wanted to go to Christ Church Alexandria and I wanted to go there not for 
purely noble reasons or holy reasons, in spite of the fact that I was a seminarian. I wanted to go there because it was the place where George Washington and Robert E. Lee worshipped. <laughs> that's why I wanted to go. I, I will be honest with you. And I wanted to get there uh, in order to sit in Robert E. Lee's pew. And, and I got there, and I couldn't find parking. I wasn't familiar, and I ended up being late. And when I got there, the pew was already occupied. I saw the silver plaque. Here sat Robert E. Lee and worshipped. I think they've taken it down since that time. But at any rate, it was there when I was there. And um, I thought, oh, drat. And so for the whole rest of the service, I was just irritated. I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't have been there for that reason to begin with. I will completely admit it. But that's just the way it is. At any rate, I was depressed. Came time for communion. I went up for communion, and I knelt down, and I said, Now, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm here for the wrong reason, so, so to cleanse my heart, this is, this is holy communion. I need to get into a right frame of mind. Lord, please, just, just, just speak to me. And I looked down at the rail where I was kneeling, and there was this silver plaque that said, On this site, in 1857... Robert E. Lee was confirmed by Bishop John Johns of Virginia. And I heard the Lord say, take off your shoes for you are standing on holy ground. At any rate, that's what Moses was commanded to do. Do not come near, but take off your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. That's the calling of Moses. It was a great calling. And yet, Moses knows his own people. He knows what's going to happen if he goes to these people and he says, the Lord your God has decided that I'm going to lead you out of your captivity where you have been languishing for four centuries. I, I'm the guy. You, you need to follow me. And Moses knows the first thing the people are going to say is, what God are you talking about? Who is this God? Where has he been for the past 400 years? Moses says to the Lord, I, I've got to tell them. I mean, you understand that they were in Egypt. They were, they were surrounded by all kinds of gods and deities, the gods of the pagans. And while they knew something about their God, he seemed, at least in their minds, to have been absent for a considerable amount of time. And so Moses says, look, I need to be able to give them a name. But Moses said to God, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children up out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, 
And there shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people up out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to him, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, they will ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. You understand, only God can say that. Because God is eternal, God is the Alpha and the Omega, God is the beginning and the end, He is the first and the last. He always was, is now, and ever shall be. The best you and I can say is, I am what I am by the grace of God. But God simply says, I am. Whenever people found that in the Old Testament, that, that name, I am, they understood that that was the sacred name for God. So when Jesus, throughout the Gospel of John, keeps saying, I am, I am the vine, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, everybody knew that this was a claim to divinity. And it got Jesus into a lot of trouble. Let me show you a couple of examples right here in this section of John that we're studying. Go back now to John chapter 8 for just a moment and you'll see. John chapter 8 verses 53 through 59, that's further ahead than we are right now. Jesus gets into trouble with the Jewish religious leaders, with the scribes and the Pharisees. John chapter 8 Verses 53 and following. They ask him, Are you greater than our father Abraham? And the prophets who died, Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, there was no mistaking what he was saying. <laughs> He's saying, before Abraham existed, God. And I was before Abraham. And look at the very next verse. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus did hid himself and went out of the temple. See, they accused him of blasphemy. You have a similar situation in John chapter 5 where we're told that Jesus claimed to be divine, and he used precisely the same language. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, it is not law for you to take up your bed. And he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is that man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting him, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered, My father is working until now, and I am working. In the very next verse, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So it's important that we understand that these I am statements, every single one of them, is a claim by Jesus to divinity. Now, this is why C.S. Lewis says that Jesus presents us with a trilemma. His claims are so extraordinary that you're left with only one of three choices. Either Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord of glory. He said, but his choices, those choices are clear. Jesus' claims were so extraordinary that he forces that kind of a decision upon him. You cannot say that Jesus was merely a good moral teacher. He said if he was a good moral teacher and he claimed to be God and he wasn't, then he was a deceiver. On the other hand, if he wasn't a deceiver and he wasn't the Lord of glory, well, then he must have been a lunatic. And if he wasn't a lunatic and he wasn't a liar and he made these kinds of a claim, then the only choice that you have left is that he was exactly who he claimed to be. So which is it for you? Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. Now, the image that he invokes here is a powerful one. It's this image of light. Here in John chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. When Jesus says, I am the light, or God is the light, I am the light, what is he implying? Well, he's implying uh, that the world is dark. He's saying if he's the light of the world, he's implying that this world in which you and I live is in darkness. It is in shadow. It's in darkness in two ways. First of all, it's in darkness morally. It's in darkness morally. The world is a wicked place. We don't like to think of it that way, but that is the truth. That's why Jesus Christ came into this world in the first place. He came into this world because the world is corrupt. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in the world order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him has not been condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. The world is a dark place. I think one of the most powerful passages about this is what you find in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, you've heard me quote this before, but this is such a powerful message. 2 Timothy is the last of Paul's letters. It was written when he was in prison awaiting execution in Rome. He was writing to his young protege, Timothy, who is going to carry on his ministry in the world. 
And here's what he says to young Timothy. He wants Timothy to be under no illusions as to what he's going to be facing as a minister of the gospel, as a Christian. He doesn't want him to be under any illusions as to how dark the world is. Here's what he says, and tell me if this doesn't sound like 21st century America, not just 1st century Greco-Roman culture. Paul writes, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. They'll be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Is that not a description of our culture? It's hard to imagine that Paul wrote those words in the first century. He could have written those words yesterday. And we all recognize that. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. It's clear that's the world in which we live. And yet the world denies it. Instead, people still want to believe that we're basically good. You know, that's one of the reasons why you see all of these protests taking place right now on the elite campuses of America's universities. They, they, they really want to believe that people are basically good. And if you can just get good people of goodwill to sit down and talk with each other, you can sort out all of life's problems. They are completely ignorant of the history of the 20th century. I was listening to a podcast recently by Al Mohler, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He does a great analysis. It's called The Briefing. It comes out Monday through Friday. You can pick it up, and I encourage you to do so. But he analyzes all the world affairs, all the headlines in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, in light of a Christian worldview. And he had a very interesting perspective. He said, you know, as Christians, we believe that history can be divided into four parts. There is the creation, when God makes the heavens and the earth, calls all things into existence. There is the fall, when mankind rebels against God and falls under the power and sway of sin and death. There is redemption, when Jesus Christ comes into this world to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, namely pay the price for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and then rise again, having been killed, for our justification. And the fourth part of history, he said, that we Christians look forward to is the great consummation when Christ will come again with power and glory and set this broken and fallen world right. He said, well, you know, these young people, these radicals on these elite college campuses also have a view of history that involves creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, he said, but they have rewritten the entire story. You can see this in what's playing out in the Middle East, incidentally, and why there's all this anti-Semitism that is rising on the elite campuses against Jews. It's because this is their view of history. One, there was a creation. And the creation was when there were all these indigenous people who lived in the land in harmony with nature. And they ate all of this food, and it was all organic and free-range and all of that sort of thing. And then there was the fall. And what was the fall? When oppressive regimes from the West came in and pushed these people out 
and displace them and replace them with other people. That was the fall. And what is redemption? Redemption is revolution. When those oppressed people finally throw off the shackles, even by means of violence, the shackles of oppression. And what is consummation? Consummation is when those indigenous people are returned to their land. So that's the new view of history. That's the new view of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Of course, it's a very naive view, isn't it? <laughs> it implies that we know who the indigenous people were. It implies that they really were living in complete harmony, not up against anybody, no sin in their own hearts. I'm going to tell you the movie that I hate more than any other movie in the world. If you like it, I'm sorry. I cannot stand the movie Dances with Wolves. Starring Kevin Costner, if, you, if you've seen it. Let me tell you why I don't like it. I don't like it because it shows this picture of this Union Civil War officer who has been involved in this fratricidal struggle, and, and he becomes so upset with, with, with the violence, brother against brother, that he actually tries to commit suicide on the battlefield, but it's mistaken for bravery. And so the result is that they say for his act of bravery, he goes riding along the lines in full view of the enemy, and they're shooting, and he doesn't get shot. And so his superiors say, you know, for that act of bravery, we'll send you anywhere you want to go. He said, I want to go as far away from this war as I possibly can. And so they send him out west to this tiny little outpost where he's the lone officer. And there he comes to know the Native Americans who are noble they're, we call them savages, but they're noble and they're living in complete harmony with the land and with everybody else around them. And he comes to realize that that's really what it means to be human. And that everything back in the East, everything that was taking place in that part of the world was evil, wicked, and this is true nobility. Now that is just a bunch of hogwash. Because anybody that knows the history of the American West, it is true. Whites went out there and displaced Native American tribes. We, we can't justify that. But what we forget is that the Sioux were displacing the Crow, and the Crow were displacing the Arapaho, and the Arapaho were displacing whoever it was. Human beings have been doing this to each other all along. And that's because there's no one righteous. No, not one. All together have come corrupt and have wandered far afield of God's grace and mercy. And all people, red, yellow, black, and white, every single one of them needs the redemption that is offered in Jesus Christ. It is a very naive view of history, a very naive view of the world, and it is a corrupting view of the world. And that's the world in which you and I live. So the world is dark morally. The world is dark spiritually. That's why Paul says there is no one who seeks God. There is no one righteous. Turn to Romans chapter 1 for just a second.
Now, those of you who are in the class on Romans, you have heard me talk at length about this, but it's an important part of the epistle to the Romans. It's foundational. If you don't understand what Paul says in Romans 1, you'll never understand what he says in the rest of this epistle. But here's what he says in Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that men are with what? Out excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." And they worship created things rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Therefore, God gave them up. See, the problem, according to the scriptures, as opposed to the narrative that you hear in the world today, the problem here is not that just some people have gone astray and they just need to appeal to the better angels of their nature, The problem here is that God has made himself known in the world, in the things that have been made, and supremely in the person of Jesus Christ, but men and women have loved the darkness rather than the light. They have suppressed the truth. That is the problem. So we're in darkness morally. We're in darkness spiritually Of course, the problem with being in the dark is that you will lose your way. And over and against that, Jesus Christ stands up and he says, I'm the light of the world. He that follows me will never walk in darkness. You will have the light of life. I will bring spiritual illumination. I will bring moral illumination. I will set things in their proper context. The world needs Jesus Christ desperately because the world is in darkness. Now, it's important to understand the background to this saying. So go back, if you have been skipping around, go back to John chapter 8. We said that Jesus had been at the festival. He had gone up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And we said that this was a great feast among the Jews. It was one of the ones that was required. The Jews attended it. And it was to commemorate their time in the wilderness when God had delivered them out of their captivity. And for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness and God provided for them. He provided for them over and over again. We said that one of the great ceremonies that took place as part of this festival was the priests would leave the temple area and they would go down to the pool of Siloam and they would dip these golden ewers into the water. And then they would take the water back up and they would pour out that water on the altar. It was to symbolize the way that God had provided them. There they were in the desert, parched, ready to die, and God provided water from the rock. Do you remember that story? Moses struck the rock and water came out and the people had their thirst assuaged. And that's what that ceremony was meant to symbolize. As they went up to the altar, they would sing some of the songs from the Old Testament, like the second song of Isaiah. You know it. Therefore you shall draw water with rejoicing, 
from the springs of salvation. And on that day you shall say, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Surely it is God who saves me. I will trust in him and not be afraid, for the Lord is my stronghold and my sure defense, and he shall be my savior. That's what they were singing. That was one of the great ceremonies that they had. Well, one of the other great ceremonies that they had, and it took place on the first day of the feast, and then it was repeated, some believe, every other day of the feast as well. At night, as the sun was setting, these two enormous lamps would be lit in the temple precincts. And the story is that they would cast their light over all the quarters of the city. So it was against that ceremony where the priests were pouring out that water and singing, surely it is God who saves me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. Against that background that you remember Jesus stood up and said, whoever drinks from me shall find rivers of water flowing, shed their light over the darkness of the city. Remember, this was an age before electricity. There weren't street lights in those days, so these lamps really stood out, casting their light, dispelling the darkness, the shadows. And Jesus, against that background, says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall never walk in darkness. He shall have the light of life. Now, as I said, this whole feast was designed to remind the people of God's provision for them in the Old Testament. The water being poured out on the, on the altar represented God's provision for them. When they were thirsty, he provided the water from the rock. What did the lamps represent at this particular feast, the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles? From the wilderness wanderings. It represented the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night by which God led his people. That's what those lamps were supposed to represent, that pillar of cloud. It represented God's presence in the midst of his people. During their wilderness wanderings, we're told that they were led. God took them out of captivity and he led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This is sometimes referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. And you'll recall that it was this very same cloud that led the people during their wilderness wanderings, that when the temple was built in Jerusalem, the temple of Solomon, it was that great cloud that came down, you remember, and filled the temple, we're told. And the priests were filled with fear because they knew that that, that Shekinah glory, that cloud represented what? God's majesty. It is that same cloud that appears again when Jesus took his disciples up the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember? And he was transfigured before their eyes. And a great cloud came and enveloped them. And there was a brilliance. There was an effulgence about this cloud. It was a cloud and yet it was brilliant. It was glimmering. It was shining. And when Jesus entered into it, we're told that he was transformed. His garments became whiter whiter than any fuller on each or bleach on earth could possibly bleach them. That's what that cloud represented. It represented God's presence. It also represented God's protection for the people during those wilderness wanderings. If you've ever been to the Sinai Peninsula, and I have, I don't mind telling you, it is the most inhospitable place on earth. 
If you have any romantic images of the children of Israel out there wandering in the wilderness and here's an oasis over there, there's nothing out there. I used to really be hard on the Israelites. I used to think they're just a complaining people. And then I went there. It is a miserable place. There's nothing but scorpions, snakes, and whatever it is, it's going to bite you or sting you. It's a terrible place. And if you've ever been in the desert, it is hot in the daytime. Temperatures can rise to 150 degrees. And it will drop below freezing at night. That pillar of cloud provided for them in the midst of the heat, covering, we're told, protecting the people. It was a pillar of cloud by day, protecting them from the heat of the sun. And it was a pillar of what by night? Fire, bringing illumination in the darkness, but also heat for the people. It represented protection. We have a hymn, incidentally, that we sing that actually captures this. Many people, when they sing it, don't recognize that this is what it's talking about. But now that I've told you, you will recognize it the next time we sing it. It was written by John Newton, the same man who wrote Amazing Grace. But he wrote other hymns as well. And this is one of my favorites. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy shore repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayst smile at all thy foes. But it's the next two stanzas that are significant. In light of what we've just talked about here, water from the rock, pillar of cloud by day, protection. Listen to these stanzas. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters and all fear of want remove. What, who can faint while such a river ever does their thirst assuage? Grace which like the Lord the giver never fails from age to age. Round each habitation hovering, see the cloud and fire appear. For a glory... And a covering, showing that the Lord is near. Thus deriving from his banner light by night and shade by day, safe they feed upon the manna which he gives them when they pray. That's what we're talking about here. So that pillar of fire, that pillar of cloud represented what? God's presence in their midst. It represented God's protection of them in the wilderness. It represented God's guidance. The book of Numbers said that the people remained encamped unless the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire moved. They only moved as the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire moved. When it stood still, they remained in camp, whether that was for weeks, months, even years. It was the means by which God guided them. When Jesus stood up there at that feast, as they're lighting those two great lamps, and he said, Behold, I am the light of the world. What was Jesus claiming? He was claiming to be the great I am. He was claiming to be God Almighty. He was saying, I am the one who will bring you illumination in those times of darkness and confusion and doubt and fear. When you do not know which way to turn, Jesus says, I will be your light. I am the one who will be with you. Just as that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire were with the people. Isn't that what Jesus said to his disciples? 
His last words, he said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all men. And lo, what? I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, against that background, he was saying, I am the one who promises to protect you. Just as God protected his people during their wanderings in the wilderness. He said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. God is the one who will provide you with the protection, the covering that you need. And he is the one who promises to lead us. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You know, there are times in our lives when we don't know what to do. We don't know which choice to make. We don't know where to go. We're filled with fear, anxiety, perplexity. And in those times, Jesus stands up against the darkness of this world, everything in shadow, and he says, Follow me, I am the light. Follow me and I'll dispel your darkness. Follow me, I'll guide you, I'll protect you. Follow me and I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. And for that we say, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ came into this world to be the light. It is a darkened world. And it's not dark because of what other people do. It's dark because we are sinners. We ourselves. There's darkness within us. Joseph Conrad wrote a short story, The Heart of Darkness. That's a description of us as individuals. But you came into this world to be our Savior, to dispel the darkness cast out the shadow to bring illumination, warmth, and life. Grant that that might begin with us as individuals. And as Jesus was the light and calls us to be the light, we might shine like burning lamps in this darkened world that others in coming to know us may come to know him whom to know is light and life everlasting. For we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.